Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Huda Ilyazgi. She is the Chief Client Officer at Saxum. Uh, Huda, thanks so much for taking the time to be here today. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. I got to learn a little bit about your work from some outreach you were doing to help more people talk about one particular piece that I'm fascinated with, with this concept of like social permitting, but you do much more than that. Can you just take a moment to explain a little bit about Saxum, what it is that you do? Yeah, so Saxum is a purpose-driven agency based in Oklahoma City, but we serve clients all across the nation. And I'm very fortunate to serve as a chief client officer here. Uh, managing our full portfolio of clients. Um, we have clients all across the spectrum of, of services, but um, I personally am very passionate about nonprofit work and philanthropic work and have worked with hundreds of nonprofits in, in my career um, that has spanned uh, nearly 15 years now. And there's so many different ways we can approach how we engage and communicate with people around nonprofit missions. But um, I think one of the things that I asked if we could talk a little bit about when I, I heard more about your work and this idea of um, social permitting is not thinking about our communication strategy as a broadcast mechanism where we uh, put out our, our nonprofit mission and just expect everybody to read the bulletin board and uh, engage with us at, in the way that we want to um, and do the things that we as staff or board members may ask them to do. But your concept of engagement is different from just, we have a good mission, please follow us. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how you view permitting and engagement? Yeah, I think that's such a great way of framing it. So social permitting is essentially Saxon's strategic approach to stakeholder engagement. I've always believed in the philosophy of when you're um, working with the community that you should design with the community and not for the community. And so this is just a way to promote awareness of your issue or um, gain you know, stakeholder support and, and really drive um, that support through engagement. And it's really important to work on um, you know, engaging with that audience in a way that's meaningful and it's all rooted in trust, right? And so in order to build that trust, you have to be able to connect with those stakeholders um, in a way that resonates with them. And um, if you think about any type of project, whether it's a, you're approaching a construction project or um, if you, um, and, and when, you, when you're working on a construction project, you have to get like a regulatory permit or some sort of permit. Well, in today's world, a social permit is just as vital as a regulatory permit um, to make sure that you are progressing and that you're successful in any project that you're, you're engaging in. And so, this is really a way to ensure that your stakeholders feel like they're being heard and that they are engaging in a process in the process in a really meaningful way. And I think that it's it's um, vital now more than ever for people to feel like they are a part of something bigger um, than themselves. And uh, if you're not, then you're leaving people behind. And I think that is mm -hmm. a real shame if we can't bring the community along um, when we're trying to design uh, campaigns that are intended to reach people. So let's talk about a couple of phases of this, because there's this initial need to connect with people around mission that may not know about your work yet. And you're you're asking in that permit 
thinking that you were just describing about, you know, getting a building permit to make a building Well, you need kind of a social permit to begin that relationship. Um, it's, it's not just that they've seen your message, but they've agreed to engage with you about it in some way. I think building an audience is one of the more challenging things that many charities struggle with, where they feel like our message is really important. We have things to say, but we're not connecting to people yet. Uh, how do you help reframe that? We already have an important thing to say into this, I need permission to engage with you about it. I think it all, it starts with an invitation. And so, you know, our, our process is a four-step process. It's awareness, appeal, activation, and then it, and then it moves into advocacy. But in that awareness phase, it, it can be as simple as extending an invitation and doing it in a way that really um, is sincere. And so, um, I always talk about meeting people where they are because the reality is it's important for you to consider, there are lots of considerations. You know, how can you ensure that when you are extending that invitation, you're doing it in, in, a, in a manner that makes people feel like they're welcome and creates psychological safety. So if, uh, you know, I worked on a project um, in Tulsa and we were working on this massive park project. And the reality is that, um, if you're familiar with Tulsa and its landscape, it's, it's historically a very divisive city, mm -hmm. uh, racially divisive. I mean, we just, uh, there was a hundred year uh, anniversary of the, the, the racial massacre there. Right. Um, but it, you can draw lines on the racial segre segregation of that city. But this park was intended to be a gathering place. That's the name of the park. It's the gathering place. And what was so meaningful about the park project was, um, it was a 10 year project. I mean, it was 10 years of the making of this park. And what we wanted to make sure that um, this wasn't a park that was just for the black Tulsans or the white Tulsans or the Hispanics, or we wanted everyone to feel like they could step foot on this park and that it was a welcoming space for all Tulsans, that it was a park for all. And the only way that we could do that is that we had to gather input from everyone in the in the city um, and so we had to meet them where they were we had to go to every corner of the city and and extend invitations for them to be a part of this community engagement process and that looked different in in different ways right so it was not like your traditional like you said the posters on the boards or it was going into schools and it was going into community centers and it was having conversations with them in ways that, that made them um, at ease and brought comfort to them in, in engaging them in a planning process um, that, that meant that they could really in, like contribute uh, in, in a way that, that made them feel comfortable. And I think that is so important. Sometimes it's just asking them, how do you want to contribute? How do right. you want to be involved in the process? And you don't, you don't have to have all of the answers. So asking those questions, I think, is really meaningful. And, and knowing that you don't have to have all of the answers and that you can design with a community and not for a community is, is um, really a striking difference in, in the process. 
Well, I think part of that, as I'm hearing you talk about it, that comes to me is that ability to ask them, how do you want to be involved? But to make it a safe space to say, I, I really only want to be involved in this fairly minimal way. And I don't want to feel somehow othered or less than if I'm, I'm not stepping into this very large role. And it, it seems to me that if sometimes that's framed as a give or take, you're either with our mission and you're 100% in this, or you're just not on the right side and you're somehow um, difficult or whatever, people will just opt to stay out if they don't have the ability to throttle their level of engagement to something that makes sense for them. And, and I think oftentimes we lose that when we're talking about uh, a nonprofit mission and all the ways you can be engaged and all those pieces. And um, that seems to me to be a challenging part of what you're talking about here to have people welcomed at whatever level they feel like is the right thing for them. And that that is good in and of itself. Um, do you have clients pushing back on that or do they feel like they get that right away? It's a, it's a journey, right? So I think that it's not always, there's not always an immediate get it factor, but the reality is that it's not just a one and done uh, process as far as the process. It's, it's continued engagement. We at Taxum talk about the importance of a thousand small conversations. Hmm. And the point of that is that it's important to continue to, to offer feedback, but also to receive feedback. And sometimes that requires a continuous conversation dialogue and conversations um, that are not always comfortable conversations. They can be very difficult conversations sometimes, and they're necessary conversations, but it's to avoid the elephant in the room, that big conversation. Uh, if you avoid conversations, oftentimes it leads to that, that very big, uncomfortable conversation. So if, you, if you're constantly having a thousand small conversations, you're building resiliency. You're building um, the process. You're building a journey together, right? And so it's important for us to, um, we know social permitting requires a combination of authenticity, transparency, investment, and public engagement. And I would even add public re-engagement. So if they don't want to engage or if they opt out at the very beginning of the process, that doesn't mean that they're not going to re-engage later in the process. Mm. And so I, I never lose hope that that stakeholder is not going to want to re-engage later in the process. And I, th I always find it almost kind of like my personal mission uh, when we're engaging with stakeholders. It's like, the onus is on me. How can I intrigue them to want to be engaged in the process later on? So if they weren't, if they weren't really interested, especially during this park project, I'll use that as an example, during the construction phase, then maybe we'll get them during um, you know, the, the public opinion phase or, or grand opening, because at the end of the day, the goal is to make this an inclusive park where everyone feels welcome. And my hope is that they will, they will visit the park and, you know, come opening day, we had 30,000 people uh, visit that, that park. And that was, that was incredibly meaningful for us. Um, and, and by year one, they had a million visitors. And so we were able to accomplish quite a few of our goals and exceeded many of our goals, but that was, that was due to um, a lot of hard work and effort. And I, and I know it was because we took a design with approach and not a design for approach. So as you think about that um, thousand small conversations, uh, getting to those big events of, you know, a, a grand opening and many, many people attending, um, how, how do you 
help people in that permitting process feel like, you know what, I don't actually want to go to the big thing, or it's for other reasons, not appropriate for me to go to that, but I can still be some more restrained version of supportive of that um, and still be valued. And I think that that tiered messaging can be a little challenging for people to think about where we're asking them, yeah, we'd love you to be here. But if you can't be, we'd love you to spread the word to some other people yeah. that, may, that may be able to be here. And that's another way you can be engaged or, yeah, you know, of course, of the different touch points. Right. Yeah. So you yeah. have to give them many, many opportunities to engage in the process. So we had a website um, that was dedicated to providing um, feedback where they could just post comments. We had social channels that were open-ended that allowed for continuous dialogue and engagement. Uh, we also allowed for community engagement events. Uh, we had, instead of a static, you know, we have renderings of a park. Uh, you know, we, we kind of reimagined what, what we would do to showcase the renderings. And um, we created what we called a park pod. And it was a touring exhibit of um, the park reimagined. So um, if you, it was kind of a 270 degree um, traveling interactive exhibit of the park. And so you, people were able to kind of go in to this park pod experience. And it was, um, this uh, this wonderful experience where they got to see uh, these uh, aerial views of what the park was going to be because uh, we were able to animate <laughs> the renderings. And so they got to see the current uh, visuals of what the, the land looked like and then, it, and then it became the park of the future. And so uh, if you remember that scene in Willy Wonka and the cho chocolate factory when he walks into the chocolate factory for the, the first time and we use the music uh, imagine a future mm -hmm. and uh, you know you go in in the park pod and then all of a sudden it's this wonderful music and they got to imagine a future imagine a future of a park uh, that was unlike anything you got to see before and it just I'll never forget the first time that um, Tulsans that got to visit that park pod came out and they were just clapping and it was almost like they had just seen something that really was mesmerizing, right? We'd created an experience uh, and, and I just knew, like I had goosebumps because I knew that we had done something that was truly magnificent. And, um, you know, we also talked about, it was a kid first, we took a kid first approach to everything because we knew that we wanted to build a park for future generations. So it wasn't just inclusive, it was something that we really were thinking about how do we how do we bring kids together? Um, and and uh, we instead of a um, the groundbreaking a traditional groundbreaking, we created the largest sandbox ever with the construction company, and we invited kids from all walks of life, from all corners of the city, and we had them do the initial dig, and that was also really meaningful. And so it's creating these memorable experiences where the community could engage in different types of events. Um, was also really, really important. And then we had virtual components. So if people wanted to join, there was like a webcam that they could watch. Um, they could watch a, the virtual um, progress of the construction of the park. And so if you didn't want to go and visit the park in person, you got to see it um, virtually. If um, you weren't there in person during grand opening, we were able to partner with a local TV station and they did a live remote from the, the grand opening. And so 
how do we, you know, how do we engage the community in ways that gave them many ways to interact with the park experience uh, and, and really give them opportunities to meet us uh, where, where they are, right? So we met, we met them where they are and then give them an opportunity to engage with us in, in ways that make them comfortable. So I think that's also really important. Recognizing that different nonprofits, depending on their size, have limited resources. And so we need to be accommodating, but there are so many great resources out there that can allow for nonprofits to innovate and um, get really creative in how they can provide uh, different resources to the, the, the target uh, audiences that they're hoping to reach. So as I hear you talk about this, and I first of all, love your passion for it because it's very exciting to hear you talk about it. I'm like, oh, I, I know the song. That's great. You know? <laughs> um, but it, it also uh, speaks to a pretty high level of engagement by the time you get to that part of thing where people are giving you their time in person to you know participate in that kind of a thing. And that's presumably, of course, not the first step, you know, that there's uh, a little bit more of that ramp up and that allowing for the fact that even if you have a relatively uncontroversial mission, you know, the, that most people would get behind, it's still kind of a competition of how am I going to create enough value with these people that they want to spend some time, energy, attention, money, whatever the thing is with our mission, rather than this other really good charity or their own family or whatever the other things are they could be doing that, that giving you that permission to, to take a little of their time, their attention, their, you know, whatever um, has to kind of start somewhere, uh, probably presumably a little slower, but, but build. And I'm just really intrigued with that idea of these big, exciting things being available, but also not necessarily requiring that that's where everybody has to end up. So, you know, you've mentioned the uh, um, being able to kind of participate virtually uh, in some of these things that would otherwise be in person. Um, are there other ways you think about just giving that permission for people to scale their engagement to where it's appropriate and not feel like if they haven't made a $250 contribution in the last week, they've somehow failed you? Yeah. So I think, you know, in our awareness phase, um, there are lots of value add propositions, right? So it's not just about contributions, it's ideas. So getting them engaged and in, in just offering their opinion. And, um, you know, we try to take a listen first approach during that awareness phase. Mm -hmm. So uh, even in the design of the park, we asked for recommendations, whether it was helping us name the park to um, do you have thoughts and ideas on, on types of installations and, and really taking those ideas into consideration. And so I think an intentional first impression with key stakeholders is so important. How can um, we listen to those stakeholders and then follow up, you know, acknowledging those ideas and saying, we heard you. And these are the ideas that we're actually going to incorporate into the master plan is so significant and important. I'm working with a foundation right now and we're designing an entire um, strategy around, they, they're developing a strategic plan and they want to take a listening tour of their community first, because they wanna know what are your impressions of, of the foundation? How should we design our grant, grant making in the next year, next five years? Um, you know, what, what are we doing well? What are we not doing so well? 
And so um, they're going to be hosting 10 sessions and each of those sessions will have up to 15 people. So, and that's a pretty hefty investment for a foundation to make, but they recognize that they can't develop a, a strategic plan without the input of a community that they're, they're hoping to serve. And I think that's really powerful because if you think about it, a lot of philanthropies and foundations are getting um, criticized for not considering the needs of the community because what they're doing is they're, they're designing grants and they're making grants for a community and not with a community. And again, that's my biggest, my biggest qualm. It's like, you have to, that awareness phase is so important and that's the opt-in opportunity, right? Um, and, and we're not saying everyone has to opt-in, just giving people the opportunity to opt-in can be so empowering. It can be so empowering. Yeah. And respecting their choice, whatever that may be that again, they may come back, you know, if, if you tell them the only way to engage is at this high level and, and then they feel excluded, they may not come back. But if you tell them we have all these ways that you could be doing that. So many entry points for right. engagement, right? And they say, maybe not right now. I'm, I am committed to this other thing, but then the next time that entry point is available to them, they remembered you, they, they have that opportunity. Maybe they do come in and, and start participating. Um, I think one of the challenges with charities sometimes, and, and I like your example of, of this foundation and what's happening with a lot of, uh, you know, maybe more particularly in the donor advised funds and community-based foundations is this idea of, are you being driven by what you're hearing from us or are you being driven by uh, donor advised funds trying to accumulate larger investments in that? Because they have sort of a perceived, if not actual need to continue to drive new donations to them. And there's a, a question mark. And this, of course, happens with all kinds of charities. It's not just foundations, but let's just use that example of you want to grow your endowment. So you're going to you know use these tools to get that thing done. I want you to spend your endowment. I want you to invest in it. And we maybe have to come to the space of understanding each other where we have some different perspectives and, and, uh, you know, how much permission I give you to kind of come into my space and how much you're giving me to come into yours can be varying. If we think we may actually have different ways of approaching, you know, what philanthropy could be, for example, or, you know, your local, local dog shelter, I mean, pick whatever charity you want to. Um, but how do you, you start seeing that idea of potential conflict um, in, you know, people giving permission to start engaging when they may feel like I have a different approach here and yours that you're advocating doesn't include me? You know, the interesting thing is stakeholders fall on a spectrum, you know, from strong opposition to strong support. And, and we understand that they're going to fall in different categories. And so, again, we our, our approach, the social permitting approach is kind of designed um, to accommodate that. And so we do have ways that we accommodate kind of that low engagement to high engagement. And we design our plans to um, really work uh, to try to reach those and activate those different um, stakeholders. And so it, it's always important to um, take those considerations um, into advisement when you're developing a plan, but there is a need for customization and really to consider, you know, what is going to motivate those specific audiences and how can you um, also optimize your plan. So you might be headed down a path that you think is, oh, this is the winning plan, right? <laughs> you know, this is the winning strategy. And then there are times when you have to really adjust because it's it's not really resonating with your audience or 
um, really um, making an impact. And so that's also um, okay. And if you think about the digital landscape, I think oftentimes optimization is key uh, for a winning strategy. So let me shift gears a little bit and, and think about uh, those ways that we might get permission to engage with people around different types of opportunities for how they could be engaged in a mission. Because we, we talked a little bit about uh, this just ahead of recording, that idea of um, I don't necessarily need you to just uh, make the donation, come to the event, write your legislator, whatever. I need you to help me get permission to talk to your network and friends and whatever about why you value this. What is it about our work that you find compelling, interesting, whatever that you might be willing to share? And uh, I think that that's an underutilized tactic within the nonprofit sector to not just think that we're somehow going to get a large engagement of people through our own communications channels, but that rather we, we need to be seeking those inroads from people who already have some level of trust, you know, our existing support our board members, whatever. Um, to me, that's a, a, a really fascinating area, but I feel like it takes a little bit more thinking and finesse. And I'm, I'm wondering how you perceive kind of that peer supported campaign idea. Oh, I love third party validation. I think it is um, absolutely something that everyone should consider as you're developing your plan. Uh, I think that testimonials and peer to peer, um, you know, engagement is, is so important. And it's, when you think about trusted messengers, you know, when I, when I mentioned just asking different stakeholders, what motivates you, I often ask them, who are your trusted messengers? Who do you trust the most? I worked on a campaign and it was focused on literacy and, and behavior change for families, um, parents and caregivers in particular. And it was all centered around um, the importance of talking and reading, talk, talking, reading, and singing to, you know, your, your, your toddlers, um, because we know that early brain development occurs in those first three years, but, but behavior change is hard. I mean, to ask parents and caregivers to change behavior is, is, is really difficult. And so we, um, we conducted these focus groups and we were asking these really busy, busy parents, you know, who, who are your trusted messengers? And it wasn't, it wasn't elected officials. It wasn't a PSA by the governor saying, it's important for you to talk, read and sing to your you know, three-year-olds. It was pediatricians. It was Big Bird. Who <laughs> would have known? But it was you know, PBS. It was, um, it, was, it, was, it was really interesting to see the responses that we got, but it was, it was other moms. Right. Um, so it was really, really fascinating to see the results of that campaign. But just simply asking, like, who are the trusted messengers that are really going to make an impact? And so we we're able to design an entire campaign um, around those trusted messengers. And so, uh, you know, as a result, uh, I think it's, you know, you can do things like develop a social media toolkit and, and work to um, find these influencers who are true trusted influencers, not these, you know, uh, I think, you know, pay to play uh, you know, the, the, the faux influencers that we see um, so often on our social media feeds, but these are true trusted messengers uh, that can really make an impact when you're designing a social permitting campaign. 
Right. Uh, I, just this morning, as I was flipping through Twitter, uh, I got an advertisement in Twitter from uh, about the Kardashians. And I'm like, Twitter, don't you know me? Why Why am I? I thought we've had a relationship <laughs> here for years. algorithm is off, Steve. <laughs> this, is, this is a an influencer that does not influence me. So it is that who are the real ones that uh, are going to reach me that, you know, if, uh, you know, if I, if we're talking celebrities, you know, uh, there are certainly other people that I'm interested in hearing about, but more often it's not the celebrity. Uh, although I'll make the exception for big bird, but, um, it, it's, <laughs> it is the, um, the trusted person in a community who, who you feel like really understands an issue or an area that maybe doesn't have a million followers, but they've got the right few thousand. Those few thousand people really know and understand that connection. So if they come in you know, to help try to open that permission to have a conversation with a broader audience to say, yeah, I'm thinking about these issues that this charity is raising because I think, you know, this approach is worthwhile and important or whatever. Um, if we can get those folks identified and get permission from them to, to help engage their audiences, uh, right, we can do so, so very much more. But I do think that we have to get past the idea of just large followers equals good, but rather, you know, who is really engaging on the topics that we care about. And that's a different conversation to identify and connect with those people as a strategy towards getting them to open the door for us to other people that we would otherwise just not be able to connect with. Oh, absolutely. And, and it does require them to engage early and often, you know, it, it, it also means following the process. I mean, it, you know, oftentimes they're going to be the ones having to receive that feedback. So, it, you know, you, we talked about a thousand small conversations, Yeah, they're going to receive that feedback. We we're going to have to track that feedback and incorporate that input and it will result in a change of perception. Uh, you'd be surprised the impact that, someone with high influence can have on, on a stakeholder. So as you think about all of the ways that people try to build engagement and, and get permission to start this path with the different organizations, uh, you know, social, of course, comes up as a natural strategy. Uh, but, you know, email is, is sort of the golden ticket for a lot of us to go. We would love to be able to talk with you that way. But getting permission to connect with somebody by email is not as simple as I think maybe it once was when everybody felt a little less overloaded with that tool. People may be a little more protective of that. Um, do you think about that particular tool differently or all the tools kind of just uh, in the same bucket and, and it doesn't matter as much if it's email versus social versus telephone? I mean, nobody gets my, my text message number if I can avoid it because I hate <laughs> getting spammed there. Um, but I do think that there's that level of permission that people may be more comfortable with one channel versus another. Yeah, so we try to gather as much data and information as humanly possible, um, and we try to um, connect with, you know, stakeholders where they are most comfortable. So I, I don't try to prioritize one medium over the other because I think that we want to reach them in all, in all ways, but we're also trying to track and measure their behavior. So it really goes back to your call to action. And um, you know, we, we think about it from an earned, owned, and paid perspective. So the reality is, it's like, what behavior are we trying to get them to act on? Whether it's contacting your legislator, filling out a form, 
you know, I, I'm not really sure what the call to action is related to the, the given campaign, but we can get them there, whether it's through email, um, a text messaging campaign, you'd be surprised. A lot of people will opt in and then opt yeah. out when they're, when they're done. Um, but then th also live events where you have kiosks and you ask them to fill out forms and surveys. Um, you can have a street team and have them go out surveying people and um, you, you host those live events. Um, you can also have paid campaigns where you feed them specific forms and have them fill it out. And um, it's a one and done. And so there are lots of different ways that you can engage um, following your social accounts so that you can also feed them regular content but there's a lot of noise and, um, yeah. you know, depending on uh, the, the email that they give you, you don't want the email to get lost. And so the frequency of emails that you distribute. And so it really depends on the sophistication of that stakeholder. So it's all about demographics and who you're trying to reach. Um, some demographics are better on email than others and right. uh, some are better with social. And so it just, it really, again, goes back to, who you're trying to reach, uh, what mediums are best to reach those target audiences. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, limit your tools. Uh, I think there are so many ways that you can engage them. And those are all tactics, uh, but it goes back to your strategy. What are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? Right. And how can we get you there? Yeah. And a lot of the folks I work with, uh, the work is more around trying to raise the funds to support the work. And therefore, email, I think, traditionally is viewed as a more effective tool. So if we can get permission to talk to people that way, um, the results are often better. But as you point out, you know, text to give campaigns have been very successful. I might be the outlier there where I'm like, nope, not giving you that number. That's not going to happen. Now, micro giving uh, strategies on social. I mean, you mm -hmm. can, uh, there are a lot of these YouTube videos where you can create video series and there are um, easy ways to give on YouTube. I mean, there are just so many ways that you can give now and the easier, the better. So I think it's, how do you, um, how do you simplify uh, the giving online giving for your, for your audience? And so it's, it really depends on the goal and what you're, yeah. what you're hoping to accomplish. Well, and I think to your point about sophistication and, uh, you know, just capacity uh, that you're probably not going to be able to do absolutely everything well. So now we have to really make some decisions internally about how are we going to seek that connection with an audience in a way that they understand what permissions we're asking for. They're interested in learning more. They're coming in uh, and knowing that, right, I may be sacrificing you know, the, the TikTok audience, because I'm just not the kind of nonprofit that feels like I can be effective there. And if I tried to put energy and time and whatnot into being more effective there, I'm not going to be putting that same time energy into other spaces where maybe I do have, you know, so I, I hear what you're saying about the uh, examining, you know, all of these tools are out there and, and they can be used well in different ways. But at some point, most of us have that capacity question of, yeah, we want to engage people where they want to be and we can only support so much. So we're going to have to make some strategic decisions about, you know, YouTube is big. We're going to do that. Uh, you know, TikTok may be a large thing, but it's a large thing with a certain segment. And it's not necessarily the one that we're trying to reach for this call to action. So we give that up. Those kinds of things, I imagine, part of what, what you try and do at Saxum to help kind of connect those clients. Absolutely. So I think once, once you understand your goal and then your call to action, 
then the tactics and like your your giving platform, your online giving platform, like that that can become far more focused, right? Um, but you'd be surprised, like the your ability to expand your capacity once you understand your goals. Um, and so uh, it really does again depend on the size of the nonprofit and um, their ability to scale. And, and so we do work with um, the nonprofit and philanthropies to, to better understand their goals and, and want to make sure that they are sustainable and that they can, um, you know, handle whatever, whatever it is that we establish for them uh, when we're working with them to, to develop these campaigns. So we're running a little low on time, but I do want to get into the idea of, you know, your social permitting and measuring those thousand conversations. Because as you said, as you're trusting some of your um, connectors to help do some of the lifting and, and work, you want to hear, but they're now kind of in the middle of the feedback loop and uh, being able to really understand, yeah, that was an effective outreach thing, even though we maybe didn't hear all of the feedback as directly as we would like to versus you know, that one was less impactful and we have to learn from that opportunity. Um, where, where do you see um, opportunities for kind of quantifying that listening and, and uh, deciding on how to adjust based on that? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we constantly, we do recommend a stakeholder database and um, we're constantly measuring results as we go. And so I think that's what's so important is to meaningful and measurable change is, is something that we pride ourselves on in and at Saxum. And so it's something that um, we're constantly keeping an eye on. And I think optimization as you are developing the plan is also important. So there should be checkpoints throughout the process to ensure that we're hitting key milestones. And uh, that is another really important key factor. You don't wanna wait until the very end to measure success. You want to make sure that you're hitting your stride throughout the process. And uh, I think that's what was really important for us, even with the park project, you know, it wasn't, we didn't measure success when we, when we made it to grand opening, it was very clear that we were meeting important milestones throughout the trajectory of that project. And so I think that is um, important for us as we're developing the process is to ensure that we do have very clear KPIs, um, key objectives, you know, established throughout the project and, and ensure that we are, you know, making progress uh, throughout the, the overall campaign. And if you feel like you're not able to gather data, is uh, is that just not a good tool then? I, I mean, I think part of the, what I'm trying to poke at a little bit more is that idea of those intermediary trusted sources that maybe have the more direct interaction and it's harder for us to uh, you know, just gather the information in a single solitary database. We could maybe look from afar, but it, it's a more challenging thing than being able to measure your own direct impact pieces if you are the one doing the communicating. Yeah, so I think there are qualitative and quantitative ways to gather feedback. And so um, there are there are other ways to obviously measure that success. Uh, but I, I think soliciting that feedback is is really important. And so um, whether it's it's through a database or if there are other ways to to measure it, I think it's it's important to set aside some time to measure the effectiveness of your work. 
So as we're getting ready to wrap up, as you think about uh, new organizations coming to Saxon for the first time and saying, all right, we, we do have some specific things that we're trying to achieve. And you know, maybe it's fundraising, maybe it's a, a community action plan that they want to get adopted. I mean, there's any number of goals that it could be. Um, do you ask them to uh, come to the table with some of that uh, information in hand? Do you help them gather that the first time about where are they currently and how do they then make decisions? decisions about where they want to go? It is absolutely a partnership. So we do have a discovery phase where we okay. work together and, and there's always a research component. And so um, we try to engage in a conversation and, and try to assess where, um, where, where, where they are and, and where we need to go. And is that something that people can just make that connection about, you know, what would it be like to work with you? Just get on the website, fill out a form, talk to somebody or how? Yeah, how we they... actually have a social permitting ebook on our website. Oh. So if people want to visit saxon.com um, to learn more about our social permitting offering, it's it's on the website. So we would be more than happy to engage in a conversation about about the work. Well, that sounds like a great place to begin then, uh, the, being able to read through that material first and understand more about this. I think you're taking the time to have this conversation. Hopefully, we'll help more people find access to that. But of course, knowing they can go in and look at that uh, is an, an important next opportunity for thinking about how they do this work a little differently. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, we are about where we have to kind of wrap up for today, but, um, I just want to thank you for taking the time to share all of this with people that are listening. Cause I think it is such an important topic to consider that differently from this isn't you with a bullhorn shouting in the public square. It's a very different sort of thing. And this, this conversation I think makes that clear. So thanks very much for doing that. Steve, thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. All right. Uh, Huda Ilyazgi is the chief client officer at Saxon. Huda, again, thanks for your time. Thanks.